0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics
1: Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Deborah Burkis from L'Institut Curie in Paris to the show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. In 1996, you joined the laboratory of Evani villegas Piquinot, I hope that's uh, correct, to do a PhD in genetics at the necker 4 Malats Hospital. Then in 2000, you moved to the laboratory of Timothy Bester at the Columbia University to start your postdoc. And finally, in 2009, you started your own research group at the Institut Curie in Paris and you are basically there today. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is: How did you become interested in biology in the first place, and then in pursuing a career in science?
2: Right. So uh, I grew up in the in the countryside, so I've been exposed to um, animals, plants, and I was really keen on doing collections, collection collections of plants. We had these uh, plant books. And I was also doing a, a collection of, of skulls, <laughs> so I had mm-hmm. bird skulls, uh, <laughs> mammalian skulls. Uh, I was also drawing insects, and I was also uh, uh, really enjoying recovering these these balls of uh, of hair and and bones that you get from from holes, and I was dissecting them and and actually making also uh, arrangement, classification between the tiny bones I could recover and types of skulls I could recover from different rodents. So this is the the angle I had into biology, like classification of of the livings, I would say. Uh, And then uh, for my university, I I first engaged into medical studies, but um, actually I was not very good at it. Uh, So finally I switched to to doing a master in in genetics. And uh, yeah, that's what interested me the most during my medical studies actually was the, the genetics courses. And that's where I was major, but I was actually, I failed the other, the other types of courses. And uh, yeah, and then I became very, very quickly interested by DNA methylation. But maybe we're oh, going to yeah. talk about that later. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. <laughs> because we, we want to come to a science now that focuses on the understanding of the nature and the role of epigenetic information within the periconception window. At least this is what I got from from my research, uh, which means that you look at DNA methylation, uh, how it influences gametic production and integrity, and the impact on phenotype in the following generations, right? So I want to start in the early 2000s. Um, there, you, there you were first author on a science and nature publication that investigated the function of the DNMT3L. Uh, maybe you can first describe what DNMTs do, and then what you found out about the role of DNMT3L.
2: So DNA, DNMTs, it stands for DNA method transferases, these enzymes that are responsible for shaping DNA methylation patterns. And uh, first, during my PhD, I had been working on the DNMT genes, which was DMT3B. And here I was uh, looking actually at mutations in these genes that are responsible for a very rare children's disease, which was called uh, ICF. And we identified mutation in these uh, enzymes. Uh, and then when I moved to Tim Besser's lab, he had just identified a gene, so the, the, the genome um, was not released yet. So it was just by, by, um, by step by step that you could identify new genes. And they had just discovered the M3L, which was a potential new DNA transverse gene. There were only um, three of them that were known at that time, the mt3 3 uh, B, and the NMT1. And so the project was to investigate the M3L, which was kind of weird, because it didn't have any catalytic activity so it wasn't clear as to whether it would be a big failure because it could have been just a pseudogene with no function or if it could do something. And our first hypothesis was kind of uh, very twisted um, because we thought it could be actually um, a, a, protein, a protein product that will uh, interfere with the animated transferase activity, meaning a, an inhibitor. And then the other hypothesis that we had is that because this gene is on chromosome 21, and the critical region for Down syndrome, we thought maybe it would be also a candidate for Down syndrome um, uh, uh, symptoms. So that's how we started. And I wrote actually a grant application on how the M3L may be involved in Down syndrome, but it turned out to be completely different. So when I arrived, basically the, the ES cells were made with the um, the knockout of uh, the M3L, and. When I arrived, it was just injected to, to make a, a mutant mouse. And then we started investigating the N3L. There was no phenotype at the beginning, so which seems to uh, imply that it was probably a gene because there was nothing. The mice were super normal happy. Uh, but then that's when we started uh, realizing that they were infertile, that we knew that we had something hot going
1: on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So you, you also yeah, investigated the function of DNMT3L further, um, also in the early embryo. Um, what did you find there then?
2: So it turned out yet yeah, that DNMT3L was the cofactor responsible for stimulating gene methylation activity, both in the male and the female germline. And if you don't have um, gene methylation in the male or the female germline, you will have the sterilities. But then more, more recently, uh, then after that, we we understood that it was different forms of infertilities. Meaning that in the male, if you don't have gene methylation, you get, cannot produce any spermatozoa. So meaning that the action of gene methylation is really for controlling germ cell development on the male side. It's an immediate need that you have. But for the female, it's very different because uh, these females that were, didn't have any gene methylation, the DM3L mutant, they could produce oocytes in a fairly good amount. And this oocyte could be fertilized. So meaning that you don't need DNA methylation for the oocyte itself, but then it turned out that you need it for the next generation, meaning that the role of the oocyte is to prepare some DNA methylation pattern that would be used at the next generation for uh, the gene expression program of the embryo. And that's where we also realized that it was responsible for the process that is known as genomic imprinting. So it was marking uh, the genome for further usage uh, for gene expression program in the embryo.
1: So you you mentioned earlier that DNMT3L was kind of a cofactor. Um, what do you mean by that? Is it not like a, a single enzyme that does the work on its own, but it's uh, used uh, in a different enzyme complex?
2: It doesn't have any motif uh, that could uh, provide some catalytic activity towards uh, uh, making the transmethylation reaction. But then further studies that have been done in my lab and other labs. They showed that the M3L acts in complex with the uh, DNMT3 proteins that have an enzymatic capability, meaning 3A and 3B. Uh, it creates some kind of conformational changes, conformational changes that will stimulate the activity of 3A and 3B by multiple means. It can actually help it on coring to the DNA. It can also activate the pockets that receive the methyl group. So there's been several explanations, both based on uh, in vitro biochemical assays and also reconstruction of the of the whole complex. So it's a cofactor that stimulates the activity of 3N3B. And what turns out to be very interesting is that 3N3B can work on their own in somatic cells or in embryonic cells, but in the germline, they cannot function on their own. They really need the N3L. So that's also something that is very intriguing. So while in some cell types, you can work on your own and while in the germ cells, you need the N3L Really, you, you cannot function without it. And we think it's really due to, to the properties of the germ cells at the time they undergo de novo methylation because they are not dividing. So maybe that's a constraint where you need the M3R somehow to access this chromatin, the DNA, and methylate.
1: So and
0: what's right.
2: interesting what I should mention is that the M3R is mammalian-specific, while 3A and 3B have a much wider distribution in terms of uh, phylogeny, but 3L is really a innovation of placental mammals.
1: Which makes it even more interesting, I guess.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in relation to genomic imprinting, yeah, it's very interesting. And then, as I said, on the female side, it was responsible for the process of the genomic imprinting, but on the male side, why do you need DNA methylation? Is not much for genomic imprinting, it's for retrotransposon repression. And so it has this dual role, although we think that probably the the main uh, uh, pressure to evolve the M3L was probably to methylate transposon in the in the germline and prevent them from having any deleterious activity on the on the germ cell genome and, and potential risk for the future generation.
1: So based on what you just said is uh, I think that um it's not very clear why DNMT3L uh, is uh, only acting in those cells and why DNMT3A and B um, cannot um, work in those cells on on, on their own, right? So this is still uh, ongoing work.
2: Yeah, it's just, it's an hypothesis that is difficult to prove. uh, But what really distinguishes, as I say, the germ cells that undergo de novo methylation and the embryonic cells that Mm -hmm. undergo de novo methylation is really the fact that they are not dividing the germ cells. So in the male germline, de novo methylation occurs uh, during the fetal stages of spermatogenesis in a cell type that is called prospermatogonia, for the ones who want to know. And these are, these are mitotically arrested, they are in G2 arrest, in G0 arrest, sorry. And then on the female side, it's a meiotic arrest because the methylation is established during the phase of oocyte growth when uh, oocytes are arrested in meiosis. So once again, we don't know, it's just a correlation, but mm-hmm. it's going to be difficult to prove. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. You then investigated a specific locus, the GPR1-set-DBF2, uh, uh, um, I think <laughs> this is uh, correct, because it's a maternal germline, differentia- differentially methylated region, DMR. Um, how did you come up with this locus and what makes it so special?
2: Yeah, so when we had the dm 3 l mutants uh, using uh, females that don't have uh, DNA methylation in the o site. oocyte, We use it as a screen to identify new genes that would be under the control of maternal imprinting, so genes that normally receive the methylation on the maternal through their progression during oocyte oogenesis, and then would keep this maternal methylation. So we use it as a screen to try to identify new imprinting genes, and we had like so there were like at that time around seventeen regions that are marked by maternal methylation, Mm -hmm. and have an imprinted uh, uh, expression. So it's, it affects more genes than the number of floci which are targeted. Um, but then uh, our main conclusion is that there are probably not many more of these genes that are subject to s- this form of imprinting where maternal DNA methylation is deposited on the maternal during oocyte growth and then maintained on the maternal throughout the life of the individual. So once you have it, you don't erase it, you keep it, and it leads to uh, monoelectric expression. But then we found that there were more subtle forms of imprinting. So meaning that you can inherit maternal methylation, but then sometimes you just keep it for a short time during development or you keep it only in certain tissues, but not the other. So we call them the non-canical form of, of uh, imprinting, which is two forms of imprinting that are not very easy to catch because you need to look at the right developmental stage where you still have imprinting or in the right tissues where you still have imprinting. and so uh, the. Uh, the GPR1 ZDB2 locus turns out to be even a more complex uh, locus. So it was part of this what we call transient imprinting, meaning you have this maternal imprinting, but just for a few days after the fertilization, then you lose it. But then there is another imprinting that comes up at implantation and takes the lead, So that this ZDB2 uh, gene is expressed uh, on the paternal allele only and throughout the life of the individual. and. Um, it was one of the last imprinted genes to be uh, discovered actually and we found that as many imprinted genes it has a role on, on growth um, on growth control and in particular we found that it has a, a role on, on on controlling the uh, feeding behaviour of pups at birth meaning that if they don't have ZDBF2 they will not be very um, they won't be very hungry and they will not really uh, seek for milk and then they will eventually die or be uh, delayed compared to their uh, wild-type littermates, which have this mm-hmm. relief to export.
1: And this uh, was is controlled by DNMT3L then or uh, which enzyme does control that?
2: So DNMT3L is not an enzyme <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's controlled by, it's under the dependence of 3L yeah, yeah always okay. for yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you, you also mentioned that you are working on transposons and you also looked at DNA methylation at those transposons in the mammalian germline. Um, why or why not is meiosis vulnerable to transposon activity and what is the effect of DNA methylation in this process?
2: So as I mentioned before, um, the main purpose of DNA methylation in the male germline seems to be to control retrotransposons. Uh, and so DM3R is a cofactor that... It's playing a role for methylation genome-wide, but then after that, we found that the MT3C, another DNA methylation transfer, is actually the ones really targeting transposons. And when you don't have the MT3C, um, you only lose uh, 1% of DNA methylation, but it's really restricted to the promoter of transposons. And um, it has a very typical effect, meaning that transposons will not really be expressed for a while. But then at the time of meiosis because they are probably the, the the proper set of transcription factors that are there at that time they will start like bursting out like really being super highly expressed and then yeah there is a, a link with um, a meiotic arrest meaning that at that time where normally chromosomes will have to find their homologous partner and pair and exchange uh, homologous material then in the uh, when you don't methylate transposon and then when the transcription reactivate somehow it affects this process of homologous recombination, which you may think may be due to the fact that normally uh, uh, one sequence will have to find its homologous sequence on the same uh, allelic chromosome. But then now, because transposons are distributed as many identical copies throughout the genomes, maybe you'll start engaging with a copy which is not at the proper allelic position and will somehow mess up the entire recognition process. So that's our hypothesis. Uh, we don't think that they actually jump. We don't have evidence that, although they are transcriptionally active, we don't think that they are really jumping and, and lacerating the the at genome. We think it's more at the chromatin level, where by having now all these active marks at transposon, it may somehow interfere with um, the meiotic process, which is really directed towards specific chromatic marks, which have a flavor of active, active chromatin, so k 4 trimethylation, to, to name it. And uh, now we think that transposon may be a target of this uh, specific chromatin uh, uh, um, uh, research that is going on during the meiotic process and then become targets of the meiotic recombination.
1: You also followed up on that work by investigating transposons in ES cells uh, and looked at how they r- are regulated in the absence of DNA methylation because that is what's happening in development. Uh, you lose DNA methylation in the early stages Um What did you find there in the ESs compared to to your other experiments?
2: So indeed, it's ESs are a good model because you can uh, recapitulate um, the genome-wide loss of DNA methylation that happens um, two times actually during mammalian development: once during uh, early germ cell development and once during early embryonic development. uh, Because uh, mouse embryonic stem cells are really resilient to a loss of DNA methylation, so you can either by genetic means completely remove any DNA methylation or you can also, by chemical means, also reduce very drastically DNA methylation levels, which you cannot do in the context of somatic cells because they will die. So it's a quite convenient system to mimic what may happen during uh, uh, development, and so we use that to try to understand if there will be alternative means by which transposons may be regulated in absence of DNA methylation, which happens, as I said, twice during development. So there is this critical window where you may think that there will be additional layer that will play a role either at the chromatin level or at the post-transcriptional level. So the RNA that will be produced then, and so the first study we made is was to actually play with these chemical compounds to induce like an acute loss of the mouse embryonic stem cells, and what we found out is that repressive chromatin mark will start reshuffling and try to actually. Uh, uh, subside for the the loss of dl methylation and and after actually some crisis when you lose the methylation transposon will get reactivated but immediately it seems that different sorts of repressive chromatin marks will take care of different sorts of transposons so it was also interesting to see that depending on the family of transposon different repressive mark may, may take the lead and uh, that was to show that you have like this uh this compensation that happens when the methylation is lacking And then we moved a bit further uh, trying to design a screen, uh, a genetic screen, using uh, CRISPR-Cas9, a loss of function screen uh, with a a transposon um, transgenic reporter. So we made transgenic reporters, again, for different families of transposon. But the ones that uh, uh, gave us the the, the strongest result for the moment is this specific uh, transposon class, which is super aggressive in the mouse genome, which is called as ILP. And we screened for genes which will be responsible for repressing these IIP uh, elements. And we found, yeah, that M6A RNA methylation this time, so not DNA methylation. So it was really out of my comfort zone when mm-hmm. we found that. Uh, uh, RNA methylation has to play a role as well when probably DNA methylation is effective to then hit transposon at the next stage of their uh, life cycle, meaning once they are present as, as RNA. And what we found is that this mark destabilizes uh, um, uh, IAP transcripts once they are
1: produced. So again, hinting at a uh, next level of regulation. Uh, so it's not only chromatin, but there might also be modifications on the RNA level that can influence gene regulation.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe, maybe, maybe many more. We know that there are a lot of screens which are carried on now. Uh, where multiple chromatin complexes may play a role so we have also now new candidates that we are following up and new means also of post transcriptional regulation which are also now being discovered here and there i know mm-hmm. <laughs> among uh, the labs of uh, of colleagues yeah
1: so you already mentioned that enzyme but you also discovered this enzyme called DNMT3C um yeah, you discovered it and uh, maybe characterized it. Uh, how did you find it, and what was or what is its function?
2: Yeah, so that's a that's a very interesting story. So, so
1: I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. So, yeah, it started with this uh, this colleague that I knew who, who made a, a in vivo genetic screen to identify uh, genes that would be important for male reproduction. So he made um, a new screen, so you inject males with a, a chemical um, compounds that will induce punctual mutations in a, a living mouse. And then he was screening for, that it was, it was then crossing to identify recessive mutation and screening for testis size as a sign of abnormal germ cell production. And so you can identify, you can imagine all sorts of Genes which could function in uh, reproductive cells, so that could be meiotic genes, or also genes involved in the somatic compartment of the testis. So, a l- lot of things. But then, I became very interested in looking in his collection of mutant mice to see whether there could be also some new transposon repressors. So, we took all the males that he had identified with a putative uh, mutation in um, that would give rise to this small testis size, and we screened for transposon. Reactivation. So we had like 10 lines. And to our surprise, <laughs> nine of them showed transposon reactivation. So, meaning that it was comforting us that there would be more transposon oppressor to be identified. But then, when we made the genetic mapping to identify the chromosome regions where this mutation, this spontaneous, this chemically induced mutation may have happened, it turned out that it was exactly the same region in the different nine lines. So meaning that we probably had there a mutation that was not induced by the chemical compound, but something probably that happened in the mouse colony that they were hosting. Oh, okay. so, <laughs> so spontaneous mutation, really. Yeah. And uh, so then we finally managed to, to find where the mutation was, but it was in the in a gene desert. There was nothing known there. But it happened to be just next to the MT3B, so a DNA methylation enzyme. And then, by doing some um, transcriptome analysis, more uh, genomic uh, uh, sequencing, we found out that there there was a transposon that had jumped. It was one of these IAP transposons I mentioned before. So, it meant that in this mouse colony that was hosted in his colleague's lab, one day there's been an IAP that has jumped into germline of females, and we had selected this event because we were screening for, for small testes. And then uh, we went further and we discovered that there was there a gene actually that had been characterized as a pseudogene about 10 years before. And then um, because it didn't have any any signs of uh, uh, open reading frame, so it wasn't clear whether it would produce any protein. And also it wasn't clear it was expressed somewhere because when you look in any tissues where you have uh, databases available of transcriptomes, there was no sign of expression of, of this gene. But then it turned out that it was not properly annotated, so we found that it was missing an exon. And then we discovered it had really a open reading frame, that it, was, it had like beautiful uh, catalytic motifs for performing the transmetallation reaction. And we found uh, as well that it was specifically expressed in fetal male germ cells and only there, not anywhere else. And what we found as well is that it's a gene that has evolved specifically in rodents. So it makes it like a super specialized weapon against transposon that has evolved for the specific purpose of targeting young transposon in the male germ cells of rodents. So it has evolved by duplication of the M3B, which is nearby, as I said. And uh, uh, one funny thing is that the, the mouse train that was used to make this screen for uh, um, testes genes is the C3H mouse strains and it's actually very famous for being a mouse strain where you have a lot of these spontaneous uh, IAP insertion occurring in the male germline so it was probably the worst background to use to make this uh, <laughs> this screen but finally yeah it turned out okay because we identified this uh, beautiful new method transferase, which is a very nice example of the genetic conflict that may happen and that may shape our Weapons against uh, for evolving new genes, yeah.
1: But this is a, a enzyme that is uh, present in all mice and all rodents and not just in this um, uh, line of, of mice, right? So it's, it's, no, it's, it's no, no,
2: no. So it's so it's, uh, it's present in all muroid, so we it has evolved, we think, like 46 million years ago. So uh, so it's present in rat, in mouse, in hamster, in guinea pigs, so all the rodents you may think and, but one thing to keep in mind is that these species of the Neurodiae uh, uh, clade are the ones that are the most common on Earth. They exceed in number, the number of bats even. So they are like the most numerous okay. animals on Earth and also they are super diverse in terms of, uh, of species. So yeah, they may be linked with having this, uh, this DNA transferase and their ability to diversify.
1: Okay. So in the last couple of years with publications in 2017 and 2019, one area of focus uh, of your lab was um, to look at the transient transcription in the early embryo and what effects this can have on the fate of the embryo. Um, here again, you made use of the ZDBF2 locus. Um, what did you find there?
2: So, yeah, I, I came upon that. Is that. Uh, I mentioned that... that um, you have this transient imprinting that goes on at this locus. So just for a few days after fertilization, you have this maternal methylation, but then it disappears. But it's important for controlling a gene that will leave itself an imprint. And so it leaves an imprint like around three days of uh, gestation. And then this imprint has no role, really. But it would be important then for driving ZBF2 expression later on after birth in the uh, the brain of the pups. So. It was really like something that happens during the first days of development as a row, at the time it's, it happens, but leaves an imprint that would be used later on for driving expression of an important gene. So it was like a concept that we tried to surf on that you may have some um, ac- transcriptomic activity that may be necess- not necessary at the time they happen, but they may leave something on the chromatin, a signature on the chromatin that may be used uh, later on.
1: Yeah, What were? Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to, <laughs> to think of my next question. Um, um You also looked at uh, enhancers that might be involved in this process, right?
2: So then, yeah, we tried to, to dissect it out. Uh, that's typical genetics to dissect it out, uh, which enhancer would be responsible for uh, controlling this locus, where you have like genomic imprinting, transient expression of a transgene, then secondary imprinting mark, and see whether there would be a uh, different enhancers that would be at play at, during this critical period and whether also chromatin confirmation could play a role and how uh, they could isolate some enhancers at certain point and then release them at another point to drive this uh, uh, time-specific and tissue-specific expression of the 2 yeah very classical follow-up
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what what uh, changes did you find in there of, of those transcripts uh, was it like they leave um, the RNA behind, I think it wouldn't be stable for, for long enough, but um, what, what kind of marks were placed on the chromatin? Is it that DNA methylation was reduced, or was it different histone marks?
2: So it's DNA methylation, indeed. So this transcript will leave uh, um, a DNA methylation marks on the path of its transcription. So that's a very common mechanism by which DNA methylation may be established. It follows the path of, the, uh, of transcriptional elongation. And so, at the time it's expressed, it leaves this DNA methylation path that is maintained then by DNA methylation maintenance throughout the life of the individual. But uh, this mark has no purpose in certain, uh, certain tissues, but they have certain purpose in brain tissues for relative oh, okay. to, yeah.
1: So it's a mark that is there, but can only be read by when it's in the right place, uh, essentially
2: when it's in the. Yeah. And the transcript itself disappears, as I said, it's expressed three mm. days and then it's shut down for forever.
1: But I, I mean, DNA methylation is, is uh, in the context of, of gene silencing, but then it's like put there in the in the act of transcription, so it's like an act, active mark, right? So, is it just because it's not on the promoter and not in the CpG islands, or
2: in the context of this locus? So it's it's laid out. as a a matter of transcription, so of transcription activity, but then indeed it will be required for uh, uh, activating or or releasing the expression of a gene which is located a few 10 KB away. So it's not not really gene methylation as a repressive mark sitting on a promoter as the one we typically think about. But we think it's more about competition with another repressive mark which has the ability to spread over promoters and and create a repressive compartment which, which is polycomb mark H3K27 trimethylation and we know that these two marks, gene methylation and H3K27 trimethylation, aid each other. So once there is gene methylation there, uh, K27 cannot come and cannot uh, uh, occlude the, the mm-hmm. promoter of the two gene. So it's, um, it's a way of, of preventing occupancy by polycomb and. and and, meeting, and letting this promoter not, not occupied be uh, accessible to transcription factor when they will be needed at the right time.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. So we, we now talked about DNA methylation. We talked about transposons. We talked about uh, DNA methylating enzymes. Um, what are you working on right now, and what are your plans moving forward?
2: So we're following up on the M6A and methylation track, obviously. <laughs> so we like yeah. Whether this pathway is also is important in vivo because what we have demonstrated is in the context of uh, cultured uh, mouse ongoing stem cells. So we are very excited now to see whether it may play a role during this wave of uh, erasure of gene methylation that happens genome wide and specifically in the context of uh, male germ cell development. So now we are actually building tools uh, to see whether they play a role in keeping transposon uh, uh, silent or or control when the animalation is lost during the germ cell development. So that's one angle. And uh, we're also trying to specifically target these marks on transposon transcript because using uh, um, mutants of RNA-methyl would have a lot of side effects because this M6A mark is affecting transposons as we showed, but also many genes. So now we are using uh, uh, DET-CAS13 uh, uh, tools to target uh, remove this mark specifically on transposon transcript, so to really achieve specificity of targeting of a transposon and really understand the role of this uh, pathway uh, in transposon control, genome stability, and development. So that's one of, uh, uh, one of the big acts of the, of the lab. And also, so we've mentioned uh, that I've been working on 3D, 3L, 3C, and actually there was one that was missing, which is 3A. <laughs> and so now we have a, a paper cooking but the role of m 3 a during male germ cell development, it's super interesting, actually, because it does everything that uh, the mc 3 c doesn't do. So 3C does only transposome. 3 does the rest of the genome. And it's important f- not for meiosis in this case, but for spermatogonous stem cells. So the stem cell compartment that is uh, required for sustaining spermatogenesis throughout the entire productive life. So it's really interesting because they have different mm-hmm. genomic targets during spermatogenesis, and they will def- control different spermatogenic phases as well but both of them upon knockout will lead to infertility so that's one of so of the latest uh, exciting finding that we have in the lab
1: when you say cooking does it mean it's it's already on bioarchive
2: no that's something we have to post uh, okay this week done. yeah
1: okay so um hopefully this will then be posted or sub or published even and then we can all read about that To finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Um, The first one, did at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know what to do next to unravel the questions you wanted to answer?
2: Um, Actually, not really. (laughs) I think, no, it's true. I've been somehow lucky enough to have projects when I was myself at the bench, which have been very satisfying and really well progressing. And then in the lab, I think uh, we always managed to get something, uh, even if it was not the right uh, conclusion that we had or the, the ones that we had thought about. I think we always managed to, to jump and, and get something of all the stories we, we had. Yeah.
1: So in the last 35 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important finding and, or something that you might have missed in this interview?
2: Most important finding, so I have to admit is the 3 I think it was a, because it really opened up what I'm doing now. So it laid the path for all the work I did on genomic and printing, and also laid the path for all of what I did on transposon. Even even though at that time when we I realized that the M3L was responsible for genomic printing, I was really freaking out because that's a field I didn't want to go into. I found it boring and super complex. Um but finally, yeah, I think that really that's the most important finding for me because that's really it was really my destiny. That's where I am now. It's based on the finding of the M3L.
1: Okay, thank you Deborah for your time and for being on the show. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com, forward/blog Thanks for listening and stay tuned